We are Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. All right, that's it. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, kick-starting our uh, new series. So um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will appear on the screen behind me. Um, But if you've got a smartphone, open it up. If you've got a physical Bible, turn to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 1. 34 years ago, on January 28, 1986, this space shuttle Challenger uh, exploded uh, 73 seconds after takeoff, killing all seven of its crew members. And hours later, President Reagan was seen seated behind uh, his desk at the Oval Office addressing the nation. Fifteen years later, President Bush did exactly the same thing on September 11, 2001, after the attack on the, World, on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And the, the point being, in, in both cases, uh, with both presidents, uh, with the intention of trying to uh, uh, calm a nation that was reeling from the tragedy, both presidents uh, at those particular times chose to give their address, to speak to the nation, uh, seated in the Oval Office, seated on their modern-day throne that they were convinced was a throne that was above all others. As I mentioned, we're going to be jumping into the book of Revelation, starting a series today. And contrary to what you might think, Revelation is not a book about beasts and barcodes or harlots and horsemen or about trumpets and timelines about the end of the world. The book of Revelation is about one fact— One fact that is above all others, one fact that is simple, but it changes everything, a fact that is central to uh, any Christian's worldview, and the fact is, is that it is Jesus Christ who is seated on the throne that is above all others, and that is the conviction that we carry. He is in control, and He will prevail, and that's why we've entitled our series through the book of Revelation, just quite simply, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Debs has a fear. Uh, She would say it's rational, and she would say it's normal. I would say it's a little obsessive. Uh, Her fear is that someone sitting at our dinner table will will choke while they're eating food. Uh, Many a dinner conversation, whether it's with family or with friends, has been interrupted by Debs literally lunging across the table to, to bash somebody on the back because they've just coughed while they were mid-bite. Um... You've probably heard of, of, the, of the stop, drop, and roll. Well, a necessary survival technique in the Sudworth household, whether you are a family member or a guest, and I warn you for those coming to our house one day, you have to learn the cough and the cower. Because <laughs> if you cough mid-bite, mid you've got to know that Debs is probably looming large to, to drive that thing like a demon out of you. So um, I, I give Debs a hard time from the pulpit. I know I do. Just, just for those who might wonder, I, I do ask her for, for permission to tell these stories. So. But the point being is that we had, we've, we've drummed in two things into our children as we've raised them when it comes to, to eating food. And the two things are, take your time and take small bites. Bex, agreed? Take your time and take small bites. And Debs will be glad to know that we're going to apply that theory or her wisdom when it comes to jumping into this particular book, this book of Revelation, so that we don't choke on the riches of the feast that is available before us in, the, in, this, uh, in these pages. We're going to take our time. So the first thing we're going to do is we're only going to study the first seven chapters of this particular book, and 
with the agenda of nothing else other than to just work our way through the Scriptures and allow the Word of God to strengthen and encourage and challenge us. We're going to tackle chapters 8 through 22 next year, but we're going to take a small bite and, and take our time and jump in. And secondly, we're going to take small bites. We're, going to, we're, going to, we're not going to deep dive into any of these truths necessarily. We're going to do something of an overview and navigate those seven chapters over about six or seven Sundays with some breaks in between. I believe Revelation is one of the richest and most glorious books in the Bible, but I think so many of us here probably don't know that because in all reality, it's one of the hardest and one of the strangest and most difficult books to read. And I think, therefore, it's very easily misunderstood. It's very easily misinterpreted. And I think for that reason, it's often avoided. Forgive me for the rather simple illustration, but if we can just put that picture of a lychee or a lychee, uh, as Americans pronounce it. No? No picture? All right. So they're not, the picture's not working. So this has kind of failed. But anyway, um, if you don't know what a lychee or a lychee is, South Africans call them lychees. Uh, Americans call them lychees? Okay, I've heard of the pronunciation lychee, but a, a lychee is a, is a very strange looking fruit. It's, absolute, it's one of my absolute favorites. It's this small little fruit that is covered by this hard kind of prickly exterior. And most people just don't know how incredible the fruit actually is. They, they grew in South Africa in abundance that they, were, they would lie on the floor rotting. We couldn't eat them fast enough. But once you peel away the, the tough exterior, once you peel away the, the kind of uh, a prickly exterior, you get to a fruit that is just juicy and sweet and tender and, and amazingly succulent. But but because it's a little tricky, because it's a little difficult, people don't want to venture into discovering what the fruit is. It's so funny, but when I was looking for the picture that should have been on the screen behind me, um, I actually stumbled across a website that had a video, a four-minute video on how to eat a lychee, which baffled my mind. I didn't watch it, but I'm trying to think how to stretch out four minutes when you say, remove peel, place fruit in mouth, and avoid swallowing seed. I mean, that's literally how one eats but all that to say, the fruit is strange, it's a little tricky to eat, so it's most likely avoided by many people. And I would say the same is true for the book of Revelation. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, I'm convinced every person seated here has had some encounter with the book, whether you've opened the Bible to the last book or, or, or not. Your, your favorite action movie, I'm pretty sure, contains a, 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 a villain who is a, is a weird person and he misquotes some chapter or some book or some, or some verse from the book of Revelation to justify his claims. Pop culture constantly refers to the, the horseman of the apocalypse or the mark of the beast. And, and I mean, you know, the book of Revelation is always the book of choice for some cult leader who has the latest theory about end times. And if we're able to wade our way through and past all of that and actually come to, to study the book, I mean, we have to be honest, it, it just isn't that easy. And I think much of the difficulty of, of reading and understanding Revelation is because two things. One, we are dealing with a culture that we're not very familiar with. And secondly, and probably more importantly, is we're dealing with a style of writing that we are just not very familiar with. The, the Bible is full of different genres of writing, most of which we're very comfortable with. There's, there's letters and, and stories and, and history and poems and songs, but apocalyptic writing, which is what the book of Revelation primarily is, 
Apocalyptic writing is something that was really only around for a few hundred years before and after the time of Jesus. And it was quite particular to the, to the Jewish culture. And it's not something that we are very familiar with. It contains writing with lots of symbols and lots of interpretation that is absolutely necessary. We are as comfortable with apocalyptic writing as Shakespeare would have been had we given him a novel. A novel is, is, is in all honesty, a fairly modern, the last kind of 300 years or so genre of writing. In Shakespeare's day, if a story was to be told about, uh, that was fictional, but it was told as if it really happened, they would write an epic poem or a play, but they certainly wouldn't write prose. That's an example of, uh, that's an illustration of, of how at times cultures can be not very comfortable with, with what a previous culture enjoyed or experienced. I know most of you sitting in this room were, were born and raised in this nation, but, but like us, if, if you experienced a different culture and came into the American culture and were exposed to Thanksgiving for the very first time, although it's very common and, and comfortable for you, it's a very, initially a very intriguing experience for an outsider. I remember so clearly our very first Thanksgiving where someone was trying to make conversation with us and asked us if we celebrated Thanksgiving in South Africa. Uh, there was there was so many ways I wanted to answer that question, and my wife, to her credit, grabbed my hand and squeezed it, which was basically to say, "Smile and be gracious, and tell them that we don't celebrate Thanksgiving in South Africa," which is what, which is what I did. But anyway, all that to say is whether is is when we're reading Revelation, we have to acknowledge the the challenge that we face, that we are we are reading about and and being inserted into a culture that doesn't fit ours. And we're reading about lots of symbols that we aren't familiar with. And as, I'm, as I said, the, this, this apocalyptic genre of writing is a, is a genre of writing that embraces and includes lots of symbols, often many, many of which are often drawn from the Old Testament. And so when we're reading the book, we mustn't make the mistake of trying to literally understand what those symbols are or make the other mistake, which is just as common, trying to interpret those symbols through a modern lens. And let me give you an example. But in Revelation chapter 9, uh, uh, John writes about flying locusts that have a scorpion-like tail that are stinging people. And I've read commentators who are argue for the fact that that's an Apache helicopter. But a first-century Christian re receiving this book wouldn't have known what on earth a helicopter was. And in Revelation 17, when a red dragon is referenced, I've seen commentators say that that is the nation of China, which is not only wrong, but in all honesty, I think it's insulting. So it's no wonder that we tend to approach this book with, with caution or end up avoid reading this particular book altogether. And I want to say, when we avoid the book of Revelation, I'm convinced we play right into the devil's hands from the get-go. We leave the discussion and the study of Revelation to, in all honesty, those who are fanatical or those who are weird. And there's a lot of weird stuff out there when it comes to the book of Revelation. Medical doctors in this room will tell you, don't self-diagnose your medical condition online. Agreed? Amen? I mean, you've guaranteed you've got some incurable disease or cancer or something. It's just not a good idea. Don't self-diagnose. Well, I'm going to say something. Don't go online to Google and type in how to understand the book of Revelation. Don't do it. There's some crazy stuff out there, and you don't want to expose yourself to that. 
But I do think this is a time for, for Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled, clear-thinking Christians uh, for us to be picking up the book of Revelation again and, and beginning to study it again while we listen to God's voice and while we use sound resources and we, 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 under, we embrace the knowledge of the entire scriptures and we lean into the safety of community. And in doing so, I think we can then begin to enjoy the treasures that Revelation has and begin to wrestle it away from some of the fringe teaching that is particularly out there. And that honestly is my intent. I've asked the elders, the eldership team, if I can teach the series in its entirety. So whether you like it or not, you're stuck with me for the next five or six weeks because I want to navigate this with, not as an expert, I don't come to you as an expert. I come to you with a, with a heart that is wanting to learn alongside you, but hoping that we can find God's heart in navigating these particular chapters. There's a Bible teacher called David Pawson who has made the argument that, and I think it's so astute, that the devil has managed to cause Christians to avoid reading two parts of Scripture that describe the devil under the feet of Jesus. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that deal with origins, and, and, and Christians are generally very afraid to, to read that portion of Scripture because of, you know, how was the earth created, and what does evolution have to do with it? And also the book of Revelation we avoid because of confusion around end times. But in both cases, and particularly in the book of, of, of Revelation, there is no other book that, that, more than, that more emphasizes the victorious Christian life because of the victory Jesus has achieved over death and over sickness and over sin. And there is a blessing, as we're going to read in a few moments, a blessing that is promised to us as we read the words contained in, in, in this book. And so with that in mind, we're going to actually read the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 1, it's a, of Revelation 1. It's a, it's, a, it's a long text. We don't normally read this much Scripture in one sitting, but I want you to follow along. Either close your eyes, not don't fall asleep, but listen to the words, or follow along on the screen behind you or on your, on your phone or in your Bible. But let's see what the Word of the Lord has to say. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of, 
of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like, was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like, burnished, were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came what was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches or the messengers, some translations, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Beautiful passage of Scripture. The first four verses that we're going to look at as we start off kind of working our way through Revelation chapter 1, I think are absolutely critical in understanding this entire book because John describes essentially what the book of Revelation is. And if we can understand what the book of, of, of Revelation is, then when we come across things like people eating scrolls and, and flying uh, locusts that look like scorpions and harlots riding red dragons, it's not going to fluster us because we know exactly what we're getting ourselves into. And so John chooses four terms or four categories or four ways in the first few verses to describe what this particular book is. And in verse 1, he describes firstly, he says, Revelation is an apocalypse. Look at the first five verses in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation, and that word is where we get the word apocalypse. It's from, the, it's from a Greek word. The, the revelation or the apocalypse, now depending on your translation, some say from Jesus Christ and some say the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, the book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's, a, it's an unmasking. It's a disclosure. It's a revelation from Jesus. He is the one who enables us to enable things to be revealed, but, so, but he's also the, the agent of revelation. It's the revelation from Jesus or the revelation of Jesus. And so the imagery that you need to have in your mind is, is as if you are watching a play and, and before you there are, there are actors following certain scenes and what have you, but, but the apocalypse, the revelation is when you peel back the curtain, as it were. You, you look behind the scenes to see the reality of what actually is going on. The recipients of this particular book in the Bible were first century Christians who were under incredible persecution by the Roman Empire under Nero and to a lesser degree by, you know, by the Jews. And what the book of Revelation does is it peels back the curtain to allow these first century Christians to see the spiritual forces 
that are at work behind the scenes. And can I say, although we're not facing the exact same persecution that they did, there are principles that apply that can encourage and strengthen us as we begin to study this particular book of the Bible. And so in that context, the book of Revelation is not so much a crystal ball as it is an x-ray. The book of Revelation does make some predictions about when Jesus will return, and we'll get to that in good time. But essentially, the book of Revelation is an x-ray that, 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 that helps us cut through the reality of what we see. We see kings and kingdoms rise and fall. We see nations come, come to, you know, perhaps come to prominence and then fall back. We see the church of Jesus Christ being persecuted, persecuted throughout church history. And what Revelation enables us to do is to peel back and to see what are those spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. Eugene Peterson writes this outstanding commentary on the book. It's called Reversed Thunder. And he describes it like this. Imagine that you're walking into a kitchen and on the stove pot is a, is a pot of stew that is cooking. You begin to walk into the kitchen and you think, oh, I wonder what that is, garlic and, and, and meat and, and leeks and, and, and perhaps carrots. And you begin to wonder what is actually cooking in the pot. And when the chef lifts the lid and you're able to peer in, then you can see actually what is in the pot. The lifting of that lid is the apocalypse. It's the revelation. It's the unveiling of the reality of what's going on. Secondly, Revelation is a witness or a testimony. Look at verse 2. John, who, who testifies, John, who bore witness to everything he saw, that is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, often when we come across the word testimony, we think it, it has to do, and it does, it has to do with, with me sharing the story of how I came to know Jesus or, or uh, me sharing how, how God healed me of something, or, or how God is working in me and through me, and all of that is absolutely relevant. But in this context, John is using the word testimony in a far more subversive, a far more dangerous way. It's where we get the word martyr from. Essentially, what John is saying is, is I am witnessing, I am testifying in public to the reality that Jesus has victory over death, and that he is Lord of all, and I am, I am declaring my allegiance to him, even if it costs me my life. Look at verse 9. He's, John is, is essentially saying that the book of Revelation is this public declaration or public witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The book of Revelation is a testimony to the reality that Jesus is seated on the throne. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It is a witness. Thirdly, it is a prophecy. Look at verse, look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Friends, the book of Revelation is not a work of human imagination. The book of Revelation is the declared word of God. It's a prophecy that cuts through all that we see and says, thus says the Lord. It's a prophecy of judgment. It's a prophecy of blessing. It's a prophecy of hope. And there is a promise of blessing that comes to those of us who would not only hear it, but take these words to heart. Quite simply, and we're going to look, into, look at this in, in weeks to come, but quite simply, the book of Revelation can be divided into four main parts, all built around the reality that John describes himself 
as being in the Spirit. He's, 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 he's worshiping God in the Spirit, and he has a revelation. He has a vision of four different things. Firstly, John says, I was in the Spirit, and I saw Jesus. And we're going to look at that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Secondly, I was in the Spirit, and I saw the throne of God, which is the bulk of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 16. I was in the Spirit, and I saw a woman riding on a red beast. Don't worry about that. We're going to get to that next year, Revelation 17 to 20. And then lastly, I was in the Spirit, and I saw the bride, Revelation 21 and 22. It's an apocalypse. It's a witness. It's a prophecy. And then thirdly, or sorry, fourthly, Revelation is a letter. Look at verse 4. It's not, it's not a term that John uses but it's obvious from chapter four that, sorry, from verse four that John is clearly writing a letter. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Friends, this is so vital to understand. John is writing a real letter to real Christians who were fellowshipping in real churches, who were meeting in real cities in what is now modern-day Turkey. And I say that is so important for us to understand because of this truth. Although Revelation was written for me and you, it wasn't written to me and you. And it's vital that we understand that. We can't interpret the book of Revelation from the context only of, of, of a 21st century Christian living in downtown Chicago. We were not the original recipients of the book. And so if our interpretation of symbols and signs or our interpretation of any part of the Bible, if I can say that, does not apply to the original recipients or to someone who's living in the slums of Mumbai, then our interpretation of Scripture needs to be questioned. And I use the example of, of flying locust scorpions can't be military helicopters. And can I say there's arguments for the beast being the Pope or Hitler or some modern day leader. And I cannot, the, the, the original recipients of this did not know who the Pope was or Hitler or some modern day leader. The principles apply. The spiritual forces behind the interpretation of who the beast is applies. But that's not the exact interpretation. So Revelation is an apocalypse, it's a testimony, it's a prophecy, it's a letter that is encouraging first century Christians facing persecution by unmasking the spiritual realities at work behind the world. An understanding, listen to this, that encourages Christians from any and every generation, including us, with a similar message of hope to stand firm in the face of the, person, in the, face of the persecution that we are facing as we witness to Jesus because the victory he secured for them is the victory he secured for us. I want us to shift our gaze a little bit to this first vision that John has. John has, remember I said, I was in the Spirit and I saw. And so this first vision that John has is of Jesus. And can I say, can we just take a, two seconds just to celebrate that fact? That the first vision and revelation that is given in the book of Revelation is not of a beast or, or, or a dragon, but it is of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so John turns to to look at the one who is speaking or to find the one who is speaking. And verse 12 tells us, as I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. And so John is is there worshiping the Lord, or he's in the Spirit, whatever kind of context that is, and and he hears this voice, this voice declaring, I am the Alpha and the, the Omega. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. And so John turns around to look for the speaker, and what he sees, interestingly, is seven lampstands. Now, we, if you look at the very last, the two last verses, we, we know that the seven lampstands speak of seven churches. John looks to see the speaker, and what he sees is seven churches. And in the midst of the seven churches, he sees one like the Son of Man. I don't want to drive this home too hard, but I think there's something interesting in, the, in that. I think... Generally speaking, not always, generally speaking, people's first interaction with the person of Jesus is once they've had an interaction with the church of Jesus Christ. Someone's window into the reality of who Jesus is is often through the community of believers like you and I who are gathering to witness to the reality of his death and resurrection from the cross. I hope that is both, because it is to me, I hope it is both encouraging and challenging. I hope that when someone walks into this building to to gather with us as a community of believers, I hope that in the midst of us, what they see is one like the Son of Man. John begins to describe Jesus in seven different ways. I'm just going to say, you're going to see and hear the number of seven many times. Seven churches, seven ways, etc., etc. Seven is the number of, of fullness. And as we work through verse 14 through 16 very quickly, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to paint a picture in your mind's eye of who Jesus is. And don't be tempted to pick out your favorite description of Jesus. Oh, I love the fact that he's got hair like as white as well. Oh, I love the fact that he's got eyes burning like fire. I want you to remember that we don't get to pick and choose our favorite bits of Jesus. All of Jesus needs to minister to all of us. And so as we work through this, allow the fullness of who Jesus is just to wash over your soul. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Jesus is our mediator that declares all things are pure between us and God. He is pure and he's the one who purifies us. And his eyes were like blazing fire, speaking of his utter holiness his burning purity, his otherness, his distinctiveness, his separateness that is true of Almighty God and true of Jesus, the God-man. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. I was thinking about this one, and I want to just, this is, I want to just submit this to you, and I'm still working this through, but could it be that Jesus' feet are described as, as, as glowing in a furnace and being purified in a furnace? because of the suffering at times that we, the church of Jesus Christ, go through and are being purified by fire, and we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I've heard someone once say that whenever we hear that the church is described as the hands and feet of Jesus, we must remember what the hands and feet of Jesus went through. 
Verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you've had the privilege of going to uh, um, the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe or, or to the Niagara Falls on the border of Canada and the States, I mean, it is, it is spectacular. What grabs your attention is not so much what you see, but what you hear. And before you see anything, you just hear this, this wall of, of sound, this thunderous roar, and, and Jesus' voice is like that. The response, I've been to the Niagara Falls. The, the response is not to talk over it, but to stand and listen to it. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars we're going to meet next week. They're the seven angels or the seven messengers from the churches. In his hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't rule like the kings and kingdoms of this world. The kings and kingdoms of this world have a message in their mouth and a sword in their hand with which they, or a sword or a, or a weapon in their hand with which they destroy. Jesus has messengers in his hand that he releases into the nations and a sword that comes out of his mouth. The word of God is, the, is his weapon. The word of God is the only weapon we ever need. And to it, the world doesn't know what to do because that word pierces into, very, into hearts. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John was the one who rested his head on Jesus' chest. And yet in resurrected glory, he couldn't look at him. If you are a believer in Jesus, we're going to encounter Jesus like this one day. And I wondered this week to myself what I would do. We joke sometimes that we'd give Jesus a high five. We joke sometimes that we might ask him a question. Maybe we've been through a challenging time and we might ask him or, or challenge him and say, hey, Jesus, I really think you missed it on this one. I wonder what our response is going to be. I suspect that our response is going to be like John's response was in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. At the time of writing, there was probably no one on the planet who knew, who knew more about Jesus as a child or Jesus as a baby than John. John counted Jesus' brother, his half-brothers as his close friends. And, G and John particularly looked after Jesus' mother as if she was his own. There was also probably no one on the planet who knew as much about Jesus as a man than John did. John was part of Jesus' disciples, his 12. He was part of the inner circle of three. And he wrote what, the fourth gospel, which in many ways describes Jesus' humanity. I would put it to you even that there was probably no one on the planet at the time of writing this, like John, who knew more about Jesus as the sacrificial lamb and the risen Savior. He was the one who stood at the cross and watched Jesus die. And like Peter, he was the one who rushed to the tomb to find it empty and saw many times, three or four times at least, the resurrected Jesus appear to him. But I want to say, knowing Jesus as a, as a baby or a man or a suffering sacrifice, or the risen Son of God is essential. But our revelation or view of Jesus is too small unless we see him as John did here, the one ascended in heavenly glory. If we only see Jesus as he was yesterday, as he walked through the pages of the Bible, we won't be able to see him in his glory as he is today, ascended at the Father's right hand. 
And so I would say falling at his feet as though dead is probably our only appropriate response. But the glory of Jesus is that he doesn't leave John there. And he doesn't leave us there. I mean, our response might be to fall at Jesus' feet. And, and Jesus, by his grace, doesn't leave us there. Look at verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to John and what he's saying to every single one of us here, and before I read what I, what I wrote down, I want to say, you know, we, we might not be facing death and persecution because of our faith. There are many in, in the world alive today who are, but it doesn't illegitimize the struggle and suffering that we are facing in this room. It doesn't help us if we hear, oh, it was, it's much harder for them. There are real challenges being faced in this room. And I want to say those real challenges mean so much to Jesus. And this is what he says, don't be afraid. You have absolutely nothing to fear. I am the first. I am the last. I have the final word. I am the living one. I've been through death and, and live and will live forever. And I have the keys of the grave in my pocket. No matter what trials you are facing, you have nothing to fear. If you fear me, the first and the last, you need not fear anyone or anything. And so as we land this morning, what is the message of Revelation? The message of Revelation is this, fear not. The message of Revelation is fear not because Jesus is alive and he is seated on the throne that is above all other thrones. Our courage is not in our strength. Our confidence is not in what we have or don't have or, or what we can do. Our peace is not found in our circumstances, but our courage and our confidence and our peace are in the Savior who has a voice like a rushing waterfall and has, flame, has flaming feet and, and, and fire-like eyes. Jesus has been apocalypsed. Jesus has been revealed. And for that reason, we can say hallelujah. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.